Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? You know, I, I think about the holidays wrapping up now, and, uh, and uh, I look back on the holidays, and they always remind me of the fragile nature of our families and how easy it is for them to be fractured with emotional bombs that land during your holidays. I know our family struggles with what I call holiday bombs every year. How about yours? Do you guys get hit with a few of those? We had three bombs this year. We had the address bomb, the coffee bomb, and the shoe bomb. The address bomb, somebody just wanted the address, but the other person didn't know it, so they were trying to describe how to get there, and the person got so frustrated and angry that they stormed out mad. They just wanted the address to put in their phone. That created the first one. Then the coffee bomb, someone put their mug on the Nespresso machine wrong, and as it filled, it dumped all over the ground. That created anger. The shoe bomb was the biggest. Somebody came in and wouldn't take their shoes off because there's babies crawling all over the floor, but they didn't want to take their shoes off because they just don't go around without shoes. Yes, those were the bombs. And believe it or not, it sounds so stupid when you describe it, but the energy and the anger and the frustrations and the arguments and the backbiting and all of that from those things happened in our family. So we got through it, though. We considered it an incredibly successful Christmas because no one left abruptly and didn't come back. It was a killer good Christmas for us. How about for you? How do holidays affect you each year? What's it like for you and your family? What's the feeling of family like for you at holiday times? You know, when I look at back at that and I started looking at what was going on and I looking at the Bible and where we've come already, just in Genesis, it's easy to understand why the Bible is just filled with detailed historical accounts of broken families. God makes it so clear that broken is what's normal. This Hallmark stuff you see on TV is Hollywood. There ain't nothing like that in the Bible. It's all broken families. In fact, most of the biblical families are led by men who have failed to build strong and healthy families. Many of their children are involved in murder rape, stealing, incest, lying, and deception. And you read all that and you shake your head while you read it. And you're like, why does he include this? Why can't you show me some good dudes? And then you watch God use these messed up men to bring Christ to the world. And you go, that's his point. That's how it's going to be. And today, what has changed, guys? Nothing. It's exactly the same. And we see Christian fathers, us, failing spiritually and relationally, and we all do, don't we? We fail in some way. In some way, stuff just doesn't go the way we thought it would. And we do, in fact, we create some of those problems in our families. We create some of the bombs. But just as God does in the Bible, he uses us, us, broken guys, with our bad leadership and our wounded families to bring Christ to the world. And so that's what we look at tonight, isn't it? Isaac failing miserably as a husband and then as a father. And yet somehow God rescues his son Jacob, which we'll see next week, and he gives him the baton of faith. Through that whole mess that we see tonight, the baton of faith gets passed. So I'm going to walk you through the issues that arose individually with Isaac, 
with Rebecca, with Jacob and Esau. And I hope you'll see two just key ideas, just two. We as men can minimize the pain of our broken families when we do lead spiritually. And we can minimize that pain in our families when we work. We just try to put some effort into building healthy relationships. Let's get started with a word of prayer and then we'll look at those four people. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Thanks for this time with these precious brothers, Lord. I love them all. I love being here with them. It's a highlight of my life right now. I, Lord, I just couldn't imagine being in a better place with a better group of guys. Father, help us hear your voice. Father, we're all a little tired. We've had a long day. Lord, help us hear you. And I know, I know I'm not going to do the best I, that I can to speak, so don't let me get in the way, Lord, and help their phones not be a distraction. Lord, help these guys just shut down that stuff for about 20 minutes and let them hear you speak, Lord. Holy Spirit, come now, speak to us. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Well, guys, let's first take a quick look at Isaac. Isaac was born into a wealthy family. His dad, Abraham, was a wealthy man. He passed on that wealth to Isaac, and uh, Isaac did a good job of growing the family business, agriculturally, farming, and he was obedient to his parents. He loved his mom and dad. He listened to them. He did the things that he did. He married a good woman that his mom and dad directed him to. She was a godly woman, and they helped make sure he wasn't married to a Canaanite woman. He prayed with his wife when she wasn't having children, and God honored that prayer and brought them twin boys. And his wife followed him spiritually when she was having problems with the birth. I don't know if you recall, but it was like a UFC fight going on in her stomach, and she's praying to God, like, what you got going on in here? He's like, it's all good. They're just two brothers that are going to hate each other, but don't worry, it's all good in there. So... So, but God did answer her prayer. She followed Isaac spiritually because he was leading spiritually. But somewhere along the way, it all changed. Isaac started to ignore God, and instead, he developed this favor for his son Esau. He fell in love with Esau's manly, earthy smell, his hairy stature, his hunting ability, and his wild, gamey stew. And this favoritism created division between everybody in that family. And when he started to anticipate his own death, he's going blind. Isaac was more focused on his favorite son and his favorite meal instead of the covenant of God that his God, that his father worked so hard to make sure he received. He forgot about that. That didn't matter. Stu and a kid are all he cared about. The covenant of God leaves his mind. So this gross dereliction of his spiritual duty forced his wife, Rebecca, to lie and deceive to do what she thought God wanted her to do so that Isaac would do the right thing ultimately. Isaac's failure separated his family forever, which we're gonna see. Isaac's failure makes it clear, guys, that fathers need to lead their families spiritually, spiritually. And that was God's plan and his structure from the beginning. It wasn't ours, it was his. In the beginning, God made man first, not the woman, the man first. And from that point on, his covenant passed through men. And it always passed through men. The women never received the covenant. The men did. And the punishment for failing to follow, followed the men. What we see missing in Isaac is prayer, a focus on God's plan and a commitment to pass along the covenant of God when he died. We don't see him train his sons to understand the deep purpose and value of that covenant and that, that, that importance of that legacy from Abraham to him, he just doesn't teach his boys anything about that. 
Think about now your leadership in your family. You could see Isaac's clearly. Think about yours. What's yours like? How are you doing in your spiritual leadership? And how has it affected the relationships in your family? Now, if you're a young guy and you're thinking, well, I'm not married and I don't have kids. No, no, don't think of it that way then. Everybody's in a family. And if you're the Christian and you're the one that's growing spiritually, you may be the most mature person in that home. And so your spiritual leadership matters. So think about it from that lens right now. What are you doing to lead spiritually in the family that you can lead in? Because you have an opportunity to do that. How are you doing that? How is it affecting your family? And if you're not doing it, how is that affecting your family? Many of us struggle with leading spiritually. Many of us do. It's hard, you guys. Our spiritual leadership is directly connected to our spiritual growth. And our spiritual growth is directly connected to our investment in studying, meditating, discussing, and applying the Word of God. If you're growing spiritually, you will lead spiritually. Bible study is one of the most important disciplines of a Christian man to help him grow. There is never a time when you should take a break from Bible study. Not trying to be pressure here, guy. There's no, I get no benefit from this, right? So you're like, all right, there's a plug for, for Bible study. It's not, guys. It's the thing we should be doing. You should never take a break. If you're here tonight and you've made, one, you've made a valuable choice, I'm telling you, if this is your first time and you're like, man, I've never been here, I haven't done this before, you made the best choice you've probably made for this year already. You just made it tonight by coming here. And I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna feel like a little weird. And I don't know if guys that have moments like that where you're at a new job or you're working out and you're having that experience for the first time and it just feels awkward. Things are going strange. You don't know people. They're answering these weird questions. They go and talk about stuff. They share. It's like, this is weird stuff. It is a little weird. I'll give you that. And it feels uncomfortable when you first get started, but it grows on you and you will learn and you'll start to move in this space and it will change you. You will find that it, after three or four weeks, it's gonna start to feel better. You're gonna meet some guys, you're gonna connect, you will. I'm telling you, you will. And it will start to feel really good to you at some point in time. But also in full disclosure, I want you to know, it typically takes about two to three years for this process of coming to Bible study, staying in God's word day in and day out, week after week, year after year, about two or three years before you really start to go, that's changed me. I'm not the same guy. Now think about it. It took Jesus three years with 12 guys and one of them didn't make it. So it takes that long, you guys. So I'm just asking you to think of it through that lens that this is a long play. It's not a short play. This isn't a YouTube video. It's not a quick in and quick out. This takes some time to stay with it, but it will come. So stick with it. And I can testify, when I commit to growing closer to Jesus, my family always gets better. When I study the Bible and work hard to understand what God is saying to me, I change. I do. And those changes always improve my communication and my love for my wife, Susie. And when I'm filled with biblical thoughts and I'm having an open, honest communication with Susie, my relationship with my sons and the rest of my family also gets better. Our family gets better when I study the Bible. And you can go talk to my wife, you can call her, you can talk to my sons at the end of this lecture, and every one of them will tell you the exact same thing. 
They always can tell when I'm in, in the time of the season where I'm studying the Word and when I've taken a break. They can all tell. It's like, oh, Dad's on the break. Yeah. Okay. Maybe this isn't a good time to go talk to him. Guys, listen to what, listen to what God promised in Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow came down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word goes out to you. When you take his word in, he says it will not go void. It's going to transform you. It will. He promises that. What needs to change to help you complete our study of Genesis through the end of May? What needs to change for, for you to stick and to stay with us till the end of May? You can do it. Let's switch gears now and look at Rebecca. She loved and trusted Isaac when they first met. Man, she just was like, man, that's my guy. But after their sons were born, Isaac did not take responsibility for their spiritual maturity. Esau married pagan women and sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Rebecca could see that her husband did not provide the spiritual leadership to keep Esau from behaving recklessly. And at some level, she may have thought Isaac really liked the ungodly behavior that she saw in Esau. And because of that behavior, Rebecca did not trust her husband. She eavesdropped on his conversations and crafted schemes to manipulate him. Their broken marriage triggered a healthy behavior in her. So let me point out two key principles from this story. First, broken communication with our spouse forces her oftentimes into difficult places. If Isaac had built a loving marriage with open and honest communication, she could have helped him see how making Esau his favorite son was hurting their family. They could have discussed the message God gave her that Jacob would be the one to receive and carry the covenant blessing, and they could have, as a family, prayed and talked about this thing and understood the blessing and the birthright and what God's plan was and how do we follow him. They could have done that together. They could have done that together, but that's not what Isaac chose to do. Instead, he ignored his wife and he ignored God and he gave his affection to his son. Isaac's choice really hurt his wife and put her in a very, very difficult position of trying to be obedient to God and loyal to him. How are you ignoring or discounting your spouse and forcing her into a role that she was never meant to play? The second key principle is that broken marriages are what create broken families. Men are responsible to lead in their marriage. Men have tagged women who are excessively controlling as Karens. Genesis 3 told us after the fall that men and women would be in a power struggle. He tells us that. And so we know that struggle's real. We feel it. And there is a struggle for, for control in a family. It's real. But unfortunately, a number of us have chosen to manage that by either beating up our wife physically or emotionally or just simply leaving physically or emotionally. Neither of these options, abuse or leaving, 
are the kind of thing that builds a marriage that fosters the passing of our faith to our children. Men, we are to stay in the struggle and continue to lead our marriage no matter how hard it gets. Ephesians 5 makes it crystal clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what we're to do. It's crystal clear. The church hung Jesus on a cross. Sins of our lives killed that man, and he died for us. That's how much he loved us. And that's what he's saying you need to do. Nothing about marriage, as you will see, you young guys, marriage is easy. It doesn't come easy. But it's not, does not mean it is bad. In fact, it is the thing you need to fight for. It's one of the greatest struggles that you should die for because it's what God uses to transform us into the men he's called us to be. This is the thing you have to fight for. Guys are often say to me, I need a battle to fight. I'm like, then fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. It may be one of the hardest fights you're in, but it's the one you should fight for the most. How are you responding to the adversity that you're having in your marriage? Another issue we see is Rebecca lying and deceiving her husband. That choice drove her to drag Jacob, her son, into reckless schemes and caused him to lie to deceive his dad. That choice also made Esau want to kill his brother. And ultimately, her choice forced Jacob to leave his family for 20 years, and she would never see him again. Lying and deception always produces bad outcomes. Now, some people argue that Rebecca was justified because God wanted Jacob to get the blessing and she could see that he wasn't going to go that way. But think about that logic. That logic says that God supports lying and deception when his will is being accomplished. I've yet to find somebody show me where that is in the Bible. That's because it's not there. God hates lying and deceit and does not want or ask us to lie on his behalf. Proverbs 12:22 says, God hates lying lips. And John 8 says that the devil is the father. He's the one that birthed all the lies, all of them. The devil is the one telling you to lie. God is not the one telling you to lie. There's never justification for a Christian to lie because God is in control of everything. And God never lies. Numbers 23 through 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. If God wanted Jacob to carry his covenant blessing, he would have found a way for that to happen that did not require lying and tearing a family apart. And just because Rebecca couldn't see it doesn't mean God didn't have a way. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God always gets things done, and often in ways we cannot conceive or imagine. He does not need us to lie or deceive to execute his plan. So the question we need to consider tonight when we look at Rebecca's lying is, what lies do you tell to steal from others what does not belong to you. 
Let me be personal. I grew up without parents around and was the fourth child. There was four of us, so I was at the bottom of the pecking order. And I learned at a very young age, if I wanted attention from my grandma, all I had to come in to do was have a really good story. And that got me a lot of attention, and usually with some crying. As an adult, I found out the same to be true. Good stories get respect and admiration. And a good story gets you even more affirmation when you exaggerate the facts a little bit. So I grew up learning how to do that, right? And growing up in an Italian family, there's some hyperbole. <laughs> and you learn how to use it to get the affection and admiration of people that you wouldn't have gotten had you not stolen it. My point is that exaggeration is lying. And it's meant for one purpose, and that's to steal the admiration and favor from another person. So how have you been using exaggeration or omission to manipulate people to get what you want? God has promised us that when we believe in Jesus, he'll take full control over our life, full control. We will never have to worry about getting what we need or that his will will be done if we don't lie. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will provide all you need. And how many of us right now are sitting here anxious about tomorrow? Probably most of us. We don't need to lie in order to steal what does not belong to us to deal with our insecurities. We can trust that God will bring the respect and provision we so desperately want without lying. What's the real need that is causing you to lie, exaggerate, or to omit facts? And if you're saying, I don't lie, the statistics bear other news. The statistics for Christian or non-Christian men look the same and say men lie anywhere from two to six times a day. So you can keep that untruth to yourself that you don't lie because you probably do. You just haven't realized what it looks like. Omission, exaggeration, or straight-up falsehood. Well, let's switch gears and look at Jacob now. He was told by his mom to deceive his dad to get his God-ordained blessing. And Jacob listened to his mom and chose to lie and deceive his father. He lied four times in a matter of minutes to cover up the scam he was trying to pull off. I thought Sir Walter Scott said it best when he said, Oh, what a tangle web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That was an elaborate pre-plan woven web of deception meant for stealing the blessing from Isaac. And painfully, Jacob was willing to let his mom take the blame so he can be in control of his family's wealth and leadership. Guys, I've been asked many times, when does a guy get his man card? You guys all got one, right? My most common answer is when you take full responsibility for all your choices. Jacob had a choice. He knew what he was doing was wrong by the fact that he was afraid to get caught. He let his mom tell him what to do. A critical milestone for adulthood is when a man takes ownership for all his decisions and all the outcomes. He stops allowing others to make them for him. He stops acting like a child whose parents make his decisions. An adult man also stops blaming others for his failures because he recognizes that every consequence was a result of his choices. And for this to happen, 
You have to learn to accept the fact that you will fail. Adult men stop blaming their parents, their wives, their siblings, their employers, the government, the Republicans, the Democrats, women. You get my point. Stop with the blaming and ask, what did I do? Excuses and blaming are the behaviors of a boy, not a man. So if you want your man card, stop blaming everybody for your problems and accept what you've done to create them. What do you need to do to stop blaming? Who do you need to stop blaming is the real question. Who is it that you've been blaming? Who do you need to stop blaming for the problems you have tonight? Christian men learn very quickly, too, that making these decisions, once you accept that role, is difficult. It's hard. And what we need is good information and the truth, and it's hard to come by. Christian men reach adulthood when we make the Bible the backbone of our decision-making. We read, we study, we memorize the book because it becomes the basis of our worldview. And therefore, it becomes the basis for our choices. We trust the Bible. That's our basis for choice and decisions. What is the basis for your decisions right now? Is it Google or is it God? Let me close with a brief look at Esau. There's no indication that he had any desire for the things that mattered to God. Not any. He sold his birthright for a stinking bowl of stew. Now think about how wealthy Isaac was and Abraham. That was a darn expensive bowl of stew. The dude married two Canaanite women and then topped that off with an Ishmaelite woman, which deeply frustrated his mom and caused her to lose trust in him. She knew those pagan women would pull that boy away from God, and he, they did. Esau was an earthy man. He loved to hunt, eat, and here's the kicker. He tried to please his dad instead of God. Esau pursued the world, and he got what the world gives. Listen to Galatians 6, 7 through 8. It applies perfectly here. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh you will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Men, the outcomes of our life reflect the desires of our heart. What you should expect to reap is from what you sowed. So, what do you expect to reap right now? from what you've sowed. Your heart's desire will be controlled by the spirit or the world. What we see in Esau is that your lifestyle, your spending, your use of time, and your choices should help you start to get a clear picture of what you desire in your heart. The only way to change the appetite is to change the heart. And the only person who can, can change the heart is Jesus Christ. You have to give your heart to Jesus. If you've come here tonight and you say, man, that dude doesn't lead me and I don't give him my heart, you need to do that tonight. Give your heart to Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can change what you desire. And when you do, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside your heart. And the Holy Spirit changes your heart when you pray and when you study the Bible. This is the, this is the way it works. This is biblical spiritual economics. 
Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit. He moves in. You pray and you read God's word and then things start to change. You neglect prayer. You don't read the scriptures. Nothing happens. That's what goes on, you guys. Think of it like this. You are what you eat, some people say. So think of it. If you stop reading and praying, I can guarantee you, you'll start consuming the food of the world and your heart will change to have an appetite for the world. Jesus said, we do not live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. God's word must be consumed every day to keep your heart aligned with his Holy Spirit. What are you feeding your heart and mind every day right now? I was listening to a talk show discussing why a young man would attack a judge in her courtroom. You guys saw it. Dude sprinted up the aisle and dove over the bench, launched himself and landed on the judge and starts pounding her, right? And this was unbelievably athletic. <laughs> Impressive. And that was the first thing everybody said is that dude should be on the sport somewhere. That dude's amazing. But there were two guys talking about what they saw, and I'm paraphrasing. One commentator said, the American family is in free fall. And the young man who attacked the judge most certainly did not have a good father in his life. And the other announcer said something like, well, that may explain what we just saw, but that sure as heck doesn't offer any real solution for fixing the mess we got right now. What, are you going to run around and hand out dads to all these screwed up boys? I'm like, yeah. Uh, then I heard, then I, I was listening to another guy talking about Melissa Kearney. Melissa Kearney released a book a couple years ago. She's an economist, a liberal economist, actually. It's called The Two-Parent Privilege. And she talks about that families with a father and mother have a huge economic advantage. Not a Christian, just explaining what she's learned through economics. And in response to that book, a guy from the Wall Street Journal, a journalist named Jason Riley, said, I think the bigger problem here is fatherlessness. It's one of the root causes. Well, I can tell you, I've read all these books. Every one of them. As soon as one's printed, I get it and I read it. I got stacks of them. There's dozens of books that have been published in the last 10 years that have documented the countless ways that fatherlessness is deeply hurting men and our families in this country. Everyone agrees that the world without fathers ruins men and the world, but the world has no idea how to fix the problem. And we can see clearly tonight, God started telling us this problem 4,000 years ago when he started writing this stuff. He's like, yep, that's what it's going to be. That's how it's going to look. The story of Isaac reveals that families get broken as clear as it is today when dads fail to lead spiritually and when dads put, don't put in the hard work of building the relationships inside the family with their spouse and their kids. We watch it. It's been going on for thousands of years, and now America's waking up and saying, oh my gosh, fatherless is a problem. Yeah. Heart of a Man was started so we could help rebuild the American family one man at a time. That's why we're here, you guys. We know all men will make mistakes as fathers and husbands. We do. But we also truly believe that when we study the Bible, and that we come together and pray together like we are right now, God will help fix what we as men and fathers can and will break. We truly believe that God will work through our broken lives to help each other. He works in this mess right here. We truly believe that we can help each other be restored and that our families can be healed 
We believe that. And whether you're married or single, you can put in the hard work of learning to build a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can put in the hard work of building healthy relationships with other people, both men and women. God will use you. Listen to this. This ties back to the story tonight. God will use you and all your brokenness to pass the birthright into the family of Jesus to another man or another person or another child in your family. And God will use you to pass the blessing of learning to love other people after he helps you experience his love and helps you heal. But men, you have to keep coming here and putting in the hard work. You got to put in the hard work. It's called steadfast love. So I'm asking you right now, I'm asking you to commit and do everything that you can to stay in this till May and put in the hard work because it will help you have a love for Jesus Christ so you can lead spiritually in your family and you can build healthy relationships through that process in your family and you will see your life change dramatically. And guys, that is how you rebuild America, one family at a time. And that's how we deal with the fatherless crisis. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. We know, Lord Jesus, that what you've called us to do and it's to get behind you and to be in your word and let the Holy Spirit change us and then to come together and help each other grow and to follow you and to love our families and to love our wives and to love our children and lead them to you. Help us do that, Lord. Help us put in the hard work. Don't let us back down. No excuses, no blaming, Lord. Help us get a man card by staying in the fight, Lord. Help us do it well, Father. Bring your Holy Spirit into our life now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.